The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. It's nice to see everybody tonight. Welcome, especially to the new folks who are here. So, it seems like a really ripe time to be picking up these teachings on the Four Noble Truths. Some of you have been following along in Joseph Goldstein's book, Mindfulness, A Practical Guide to Awakening. And uh, we're now looking at the different maps or conceptual maps that the Buddha taught that are designed to illuminate our actual experience as human beings. And one of the most potent maps, the first map or the first teaching the Buddha used was what is normally called the Four Noble Truths. But might be better called something like four ways of training our mind to understand that are liberating. And so this first step, the first of the Four Noble Truths is appreciating, and I really like that word here, appreciating the truth of dukkha. And dukkha often uh, gets translated as suffering, but it's not quite right. A better understanding for dukkha is that our experience, any experience, internal, external, anything we see or think or hear or touch, that these experiences as a human being are limited. They're uncertain. Now, this isn't a mistake. It isn't, we're not, no one, the Buddha isn't saying that somehow it's broken, the world or our experiences but that the very nature of experience is limited. Another way to say this, and I mentioned this last week, is the world isn't here to make us happy in an existential or lasting sense. The world is just the world. Things are coming and going, sights and sounds and thoughts and smells and tastes and touches. And it keeps changing, you know. Our life has been constantly, our life of experiences. Experiences are coming and going in flux. Never set, okay. Now it's like this for me. But immediately it's somehow different. It's now, now it's like this. This moment doesn't even really come into being before it's already becoming the next moment and the next moment and the next moment. So this world we inhabit as you know, sensitive beings, it isn't a world to grasp because we got what we want. Although that's constantly what we're doing. We're trying to get happiness in the world we inhabit. And we're constantly disappointed. So the Buddha might say something like, you know, the first step as human beings as a spiritual being, as somebody who is willing to open their mind or open their heart to the possibility of real freedom. Not freedom in a transcendent sense, like I got the hell out of here and now I'm free, but like right here in the world we inhabit, being free and kind, skillful, wise. So the first step is first just to even have an open mind about that possibility. And then the second step might be recognizing the relevance of the experience, of the limited experience or the uncertain or the unsatisfactory experience of our experiences. That our experiences are unsatisfactory. We always want more. I had a nice lunch today. I want more. You know, I even had chocolate today, but I would like, I see it in my mind, I would like something sweet when I go home tonight. You know, I want some entertainment. I've seen a lot of entertaining things, and I want more. You know, I have a really comfortable home, and I want more. So, the basic uh, problem or disease, you know, illness of our human minds is that 
we don't want to acknowledge the unsatisfactoriness, the limitedness, the uneasiness of our experience, the uncertainty of our experiences. We're in denial. You know, we have a strong belief that everything is fine. I was listening to a talk by Joseph Goldstein recently at the end of the three-month retreat, and uh, he was talking a little bit about, um, you know, as the retreatants were in silence, not aware of what was going on for three months, some of them just six weeks, some of them for three months. This just ended a week or two ago. And so near the end of that three-month retreat, he gave a talk on some of the things that have been happening in the world generally at Ferguson and New York City, and but then also specifically about um, his and IMS's, this retreat center's commitment to diversity and looking at what is not so easy to look at. And one of the things he shared is, you know, when they started back in the mid-70s after Joseph had spent about 10 years in Asia practicing, most of 10 years in Asia practicing, he came back and just reflecting on how it was pretty much exclusively, you know, white, middle-class people involved in the Buddhist meditation movement. And he said the most astounding thing was that it didn't occur to him, like, what a homogeneous group that is. That, that didn't strike them as being odd, that in our world, that the people would be sort of all the same or sharing a very similar culture. And so a lot of the ways that we're involved, like living in a place where there's a lot of suffering, we tend not to notice You know, we have our defenses, our ways of not being aware. And people don't like to hear this because it means, like in terms of our spiritual practice, that we have to get uncomfortable before we can get really comfortable. And this is is part of the path. You know, like it's a path of awakening. We can't go right to bliss until we realize how hard the heart is separating itself is sort of like in my case being a straight, white, able-bodied male. You know, it's it's really uncomfortable for me to imagine not having that privilege. I'm comfortable with it. And when I do think, I notice, like when I think about some of the problems in the world, and, you know, I've been interested in the problems in the world, but I've noticed I always think about those problems like how to keep what I have and fix the problem, as opposed to being willing to go to that uneasy place that whatever I think I have, whatever privilege or whatever it is that I think I have, that it is uncertain, it's unsatisfactory, that the separation itself, like the dependence itself, isn't sustainable, isn't workable. It depends on this exhausting thing of keeping myself apart, not being aware, not being awake, not paying attention to what's going on. So, you can imagine why we don't want to look at this stuff. You know, it's sort of an interesting series of events to have some of these big news stories about some of the underlying racial injustices in our culture because it makes us feel uncomfortable. And I think it just fits so well with the, this practice we're trying to do, which is inhabit authentically inhabit the space that we live in, the world that we live in. Stacy McClendon, one of our community leaders and soon to join our board here at Common Ground, she sent an email earlier today with a TED Talk that was really interesting by, um, what was her name? Verna Myers. 
a diversity teacher, really dynamic speaker. And uh, she, one of her opening lines, she, she, had, she was mostly talking about um, changing attitudes about African-American men, males, and how just deeply, you know, culturally programmed we are to have certain attitudes. And uh, then, of course, what comes out of those you know, those attitudes, mostly unconscious attitudes that we have. And her first step, she, so she has three action items, and the first action item is we need to stop trying to be good people and instead start being real people. <laughs> and this is, I think, also really speaks to this first noble truth. There is dukkha. There, there, there are these underlying, uneasy, unsatisfying, uncertain destabilizing truths about our experience. And instead of to put a veneer on that, <clears throat> we, wanna, we need to realize the mind, the heart, or you could say the wisdom that isn't afraid of that and can be truthful about that. So things like how we are together in community or just even how we are alone as a person can then start coming out of that more authentic, real, truthful relationship with how it is to be this person in this moment with this kind of cultural conditioning, with these sort of fears, with these sort of hopes. What, does, what is that like? She gives this example of herself, which I really appreciated where she was flying in an airplane and uh, the, uh, the pilot comes on, you know, as they do at the beginning of a flight, and she goes, huh, how great is that? A woman pilot, you know, go women, or something like that, you know, just having this sort of moment of appreciation. And then later in the flight, they were hitting some turbulence, and she noticed the first thought in her mind was, I hope that woman can drive <laughs> or fly, you know. And, and then she noted, you know, she's, she's a diversity trainer, so she, it occurred to her like, oh, <laughs> that's interesting, you know. And uh, she also mentions this, uh, and I'm forgetting the name of it, but there's this thing on the website that I, I did a number of years ago. Maybe you remember that it was Implicit. Implicit Perceptions. Yeah. Yeah, but anyway, you you they have they some clever psychologist created this great little study where they uh basically there's some speed involved and they just sort of looking um in unconscious ways how the mind correlates and it's specifically around race or uh and the kind of implicit or unconscious assumptions we make or valuations we have that are just there. And the thing is, if we remain unaware, then these just get acted all, all the time. Now the thing is, we may say, well, so what? But what we find when you start looking is acting out unconsciously in the world is suffering. It really is. Being unaware is suffering. And just because we're not aware that we're suffering being closed doesn't mean we're not suffering because we're closed-minded or caught, dependent on unconscious values. So her point seems so real and useful for those of us interested in this path of awakening to not try to be good with that, in that sort of veneer sense, but to be more interested in being real and honest at least initially with ourselves, and then hopefully in wider and wider circles. Oh, this is how it is. This is the attitude that's coming up. This is the fear that I have walking down the street. When I hear about these protests going on, this is what I think, right? And uh, I, I have to say, one of the greatest things about this practice 
over the years is I'm not ashamed of all the despicable thoughts that arise in my mind. They're just thoughts, but they're arising in my mind lawfully out of my cultural conditioning. But at least now, I'm not afraid of them. At least now, I can be honest that they're in my mind. I'm not ready to tell you all the thoughts <laughs> that have gone through my mind today or, you know, let alone my lifetime. But I'm beginning to be willing to see them myself. And that feels liberating. To not, you know, when we're afraid to see the world or feel the world in the way that we see and feel the world, I mean, that is the ultimate deal with the devil. You know, that we can't even be honest about that. And I think this is really what the Buddha is pointing to. He has three insights with this first liberating truth, this first noble truth. First is just acknowledging the unsatisfactoriness. So on this level, you know, we're talking about the unsatisfactoriness of having a conditioned personality. Sort of coming up this life, this personality, this mind and heart. It is coming out of culture. Well, we know what our culture is like. All we have to do is sort of look around. You know, there is a lot, our culture is driven by or built on so much greed and so much fear and hatred and sort of very um, terrible ideas of separation, feeling less than, feeling more than, better than, worse than. And we are literally, this heart, this mind is literally conditioned by that culture. So either we think it's me and we're, we hate it and we hide from it, which you can't do, of course. So it's just suffering. Or we totally see it and don't question it, take it personally, which is its own dead weight you know, that we drag around in our lives. Because I feel this, it must be me. Because of that thought is arising in my mind, it must be me. No, it's just the natural, lawful expression of the culture that conditioned the mind. We don't have to... See, this is, what, this is the freedom that mindfulness or awareness provides is we see all the prejudices, we see all the fear, we see all the greed, but we don't have to be that. We don't have to identify with it. But we can't be free without first feeling the uncomfortable truth that it's there. It's like this. This is how the heart is reacting. This is how the heart is evaluating, is judging, is being now in the moment. And doesn't that make, it seems to make a lot of sense to me that, uh, you know, the deepest kind of spiritual healing requires this sort of authenticity. You know, just being really real. And, and one of the stinkiest things in the world is when people pretend to be free or to pretend to be wise or to pretend to be compassionate because they know on some level that it's a good thing but they haven't figured out like how that arises as a natural truth in one's heart or mind. And so we try to fit some form that we think you know, a compassionate person, a loving, wise person looks like. And then, of course, in that state of imitating being a, a good person, we become so afraid of the way our mind or heart is actually conditioned, right? Because it's like our enemy. We ourselves, or the conditioned mind itself, becomes our enemy because it doesn't fit the person we want to be in the world. I don't know too much about the whole 12-step movement, but I know a little bit over the years we've had a really successful group here on Friday nights now for I think over 10 years for people interested in Buddhism and, and the 12-step recovery from addictions. And, uh, 
you know, one of the things I think they do traditionally at the beginning of a 12-step person is, that, you know, people say their first name and, you know, I'm Mark and I'm an alcoholic. You know, we could, you know, at Comagram, we could do the same thing. You know, I'm Mark and, you know, and our addiction is either, you know, addicted to some idea that seemingly protects us from seeing what we don't want to see or we see something that we don't want to see, but we get identified with it. We take it personally. But we're really, we haven't quite learned how to be in the middle of our own cultured or uh, conditioned personality coming out of culture or in our wider circles of community, like be right in the middle of the messiness that it is to be a United States citizen or the messiness that it is to you know, be a common ground community member. It's all messy. It's like being in the middle of our families. They're messy too. Anybody part of a perfect family? You know, where there's no delusion, no irritation or hatred, no greed, no manipulation or control? No. It's all messy. So we're addicted to not being in the middle. You know, and we're willing to use really inefficient strategies to not be in the middle of our lives. All these strategies make what is limited in life, it turns it into suffering. So this first liberating truth, this first noble truth, sometimes gets translated as suffering, but it isn't suffering until we're acting out a fear or a resistance to the limited nature of experience. Experience is just what it is. The world of experience, or what we just call generally the world, reality, it's just what it is. It's neither good nor bad. It's just causes and conditions playing themselves out. And from this relative point of being me, it's unsatisfying because as an ego... I can never get from this world of experience what I really want. But what I can do is I can be free in it. That's the happiness that we have. We can be free and we can be loving and we can be wise in this world. But only when we truthfully acknowledge the way that it is. You know, another expression of this delusion or this disconnection is, uh, this also came from Joseph's talk and it's very similar to my own experience. You know, just, I grew up in North Minneapolis, but where I grew up and at the time I grew up, it was a very provincial place, very homogeneous place. And, uh, you know, places where I went to school and places where I lived. It's, you know, one of the weights we carry around in our life is we make the wrong assumption that everybody's experience is somehow like my experience. Because we haven't sort of sat down with each other in a safe enough environment where we really hear that our experiences are quite different. You know, and... Some of us, sometimes we get it, you know, although it's still easy to make a fool out of ourselves. I was thinking about this just in terms of, you know, women who have had children and feeling or pretending as if I have some sense of what that would be like to give birth. I don't know what that's like. But what's kind of interesting is how that stands out when I when it really dawns in my mind that I really don't know that experience, not only of the physical part of being pregnant, giving birth, but raising a child or being the mother or even a father of a child. So it's, it's just, uh, you know, that kind of humility. And this is true also about cultural differences. You know, getting to know people who have different kinds of... Um, sexual orientations than I do or have different cultural experiences than I do or 
you know, are really affluent or live in poverty or whatever it might be. And the thing is, opening in this way, it's, it's destabilizing because any sort of arrogance that we have that we, where we think we know how it is starts to get stripped away as we start having these conversations where it's safe, where people can be real and share what their experience is. I mean, we're getting a little of this now, just a little, as, and of course it depends on the media we listen to, whether we're getting any of this, but, you know, like, just starting to dawn on some of us coming from a privileged point of view, what it might be like, for example, to be walking around as a black man in our culture that is outside my field of experience. And so as we have these, it's like uh, any sort of stance we have starts to get stripped away and, and it's replaced by more and more humility. So it's not so much now, oh, now I get it, but more now I know that I don't get it which is really helpful, I think, in terms of becoming a more free, alive, and functional human being. That we really have to get that. Oh, I don't get it. I really don't get it. <laughs> you know, there's this, uh, in, in this work, you know, there's this term called being an ally. And <laughs> I always felt like, you know, okay, you know, how can you be an ally? But now I'm realizing that being an ally means you realize that you don't get it. Instead of, oh, I get it. I really get it. I get your experience. But it's more that humility, like I get that I don't get it. And I want to listen and I can become more sensitive. But I don't have your experience. And I know more and more, I know I don't have your experience. And you see how that changes how we are in the world from this false sense of stability to a more honest sense of uneasy or absence of stability. Because in Buddhism, the path of awakening, the stability doesn't come from grasping any stance. The stability comes from realizing we don't need to have a fixed stance. That we don't need that security that things like privilege or you know, any sort of sense of separation might give us, like I belong to this clan or this group, this is my identity. Any kind of identity is a dead end in terms of real happiness. Any fixed identity or any attachment to identity. So how do we start to unpack this? So I wanted to save a little bit more time tonight for discussion. We have about 20 minutes or so. Because you know, opening to dukkha, opening to this, we've all had our own personal adventure or our own personal way of avoiding this adventure in our lives. And it'd be really nice for us to share with each other, you know, how have we begun to open some of those doors into a humility of knowing that we don't know what that's like. Because, of course, this arrogance comes from every place along the cultural scale where we think we get what it's like, right? So just what you've been learning, how it relates to suffering. Remember, the, this li first liberating truth is acknowledging the limitations, acknowledging that the limitations of experience, the uneasiness of experience, it's relevant. It's not something to run from or hide from. That it's liberating to get to know it until we could say, I'm not in denial anymore. I'm not confused by the limitations. They're there, but I'm not confused by them. I'm not shutting down or pretending. So what comes to mind? What do you have to share? Of course, any questions you have too. Yeah, Graham. Um, what you said about uh, sort of wanting to be a certain I think I understood what you're talking about. Just wanting to be a peaceful person and pretending to be wise or peaceful and therefore not um, 
acknowledging my own anger or sadness and things like that. And uh, lately for me, doing psychotherapy was a way that, that it's like it took for me having another person and also being like, and that other person saying, okay, you have to tell me like everything you think, which is very difficult practice also. And of course, there's still things that I shield from even in that supposedly safe, completely, you know, it's for the purpose of opening up. And anyway, uh, it took that, you know, for me to be able to start to acknowledge some of these feelings that I've been um, kind of suppressing for a long time. And, and I think, I know that the Buddhist teaching is not to suppress but I think I sort of fell into this trap of, of like thinking of the good Buddhist does this so you know I wasn't able to really see my own shit yeah that's why it's really important that people who are really serious about this practice hear the Buddha's first talk on the practice which is there is dukkha there is this fundamental, uneasy, uncertain, and limited nature about anything we look at or anything we know. And we have to start there because without seeing that, we don't understand how it gets set in motion, how it gets replicated. And I think therapy can be really useful because if it's done right, it creates a really safe environment to begin the exploration. In the same way that community can, wholesome community can do that, um, like a circle or just ways that we create an environment where we're just listening to each other and we're practicing not evaluating or judging, but just taking it in and letting people speak their truth. Other thoughts that come to mind? Yeah, Nancy. This is kind of a low-level, simple life experience for me. I have some sand came from the Sahara Desert. It's very, very fine. It's like powder. And I like having people see if they can tell me what they think it is. And most people will feel it. And some people will say, well, can that be sand? So then we talk about it. But I showed it to a couple of chefs one day. And it was wonderful because they felt it, and then they smelled it, and they tasted it. Wow. <laughs> we don't all see the world the same way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Other thought? Yeah. Yeah, when you, when you talk about limitation, are you talking about anything more than the fact that you just have five senses and that... I mean, I guess the world is, I mean, life is impermanent. Are you talking about more than that? Yeah, so the Buddha talks about uh, the this limited, uneasy, you know, aspect or truth in a couple different ways. One is that we can't stop unpleasant experience from arising with some frequency, right? Maybe some people more than others. But... All of us, no matter how fortunate we might be, we have unpleasant mind states, like we experience loss. We have unpleasant, we stub our toe, it's cold out. So that's one level of the unsatisfactory, limited nature, is that unpleasant experiences come our way. And then the second kind of level of this, maybe slightly more subtle, is that even when the conditions are rather nice right now. Like, they might be this way right now for some of us. Like, it feels nice to be at Common Ground tonight. Nice to be in the community. My body's still relatively comfortable. I get to go home. I can watch what I want to watch. I've got food in my fridge. Got a nice car that starts when I turn it on. Um, but on some level, mostly unconscious, but it's still operating in our mind, even if it's unconscious, we know that all of that that we're counting on or dependent on can be taken away, right? We know that our health can be taken away, our life itself can end. We know, is there anybody who doesn't know people their own age that have died? 
or younger than you, right? We've all met people who at our age or younger died. So that could happen to us too, or get sick, or lose their job, or, you know, break up with their partner or whatever. So even whatever we are, our happiness is dependent on now, and this is true for all of us, whether we want to bring this up or really get this or not, all of that is um, uncertain. You know, and ultimately will be taken from us. There is nothing we're counting on right now or like that we have right now that we can keep in any lasting way. So that's a little uneasy. You know, here we are working for our retirement. For what? You know, it's like, just to open that picture up a little bit. Or even, you know, just to get to Friday, you know, so I get the weekend or whatever it might be. But then Monday comes. <coughs> and then there's even a deeper, more subtle level of this. And it's a, just a, it's Nancy, right? Yeah, what Nancy was talking about with really fine sand, it's a little bit like that, that from this point of view of being an ego, there is n- even this moment can't be grasped because it isn't graspable. You know, life experience, it's a, it's a process. It moves. It's like a river. You can't take a hold of it. You can't actually own it in any real way. But we don't realize that. We are so in our thoughts about things. Like my concept of Mark, who works at Common Ground Meditation Center, that idea creates this semblance of permanence. But the reality of being at common ground isn't something that can be grasped or being married to Win Fricky. It can't be grasped. And so that the Buddha, that's the most subtle level that in its very fabric, there is nothing, there's no ground. There's a couple, see if I can bring it to mind, a couple phrases that sort of capture this that we you know, we prefer, we, we prefer the, um, the sort of the unstable ground of somethingness to the sure ground of emptiness. Um, that's not exactly the right, but the idea is that, you know, when we really acknowledge the process nature, the changing, the uncertain nature, really acknowledge that it's a refuge, actually, because the heart or the mind no longer is seeking for stability where you can't find stability in, that self, in those, all those self-centered ways. Like There is no ground, there's no stability in any self-centered pursuit, whatever it might be, including utopia, like justice for all people. It doesn't mean we don't work for justice for all people, but we don't do that so that we'll have something. We do that as an act of love, like as an expression of the nature of love, the process of love, not as an individual who wants solid ground. Because that individual will be disappointed if it's going to take a long time and may be willing to do things that actually undermine justice in order to get justice, which is what we seem to be doing a lot, you know, in our culture and in the world. Other thoughts that come to mind? Yeah, Tom. I was thinking about, um, it reminded me of this uh, volunteer thing that I did over three years with the Wilder Foundation. We interview homeless people. I've been doing it about 20 years, every three years. And um, it's a half hour interview. The person gets five dollars. And every time I do it, I come away with this, with this amazing realization that I could easily be sitting across from answering these really intimate questions. And anyone in this room, one thing, two things go wrong, a job, um, a marriage, or a breakup. And it's always, uh, it, it always just shakes me to the core to do this. And I get nervous about doing it every year, or every three years, actually. And, Something next year again, but I really encourage people to to think in those terms and maybe doing something like that, or just really listening and finding out um, a, a deeper level of understanding. Yeah, 
people who do prison work, there are a lot of people in our community that go into the prisons and teach mindfulness, say the same thing. That, And I think, you know, like, for example, me growing up in North Minneapolis, and uh, there were other people growing up in North Minneapolis, and, you know, coming from a different culture, people of color, and their experience is really different than mine. And, but it's, it's like, if I don't, you know, if I don't have a relationship, my sort of insular place in the world, it doesn't get loosened up because I don't know. I don't know how insular it is until we open those doors. That's the thing. Thanks, Tom, for sharing that. Other thoughts? Yeah. Um, I was thinking as you're talking that um, uh, we work so hard to try and um, join together with a, a group of people or uh, people that we see similar to, whether it's cultural, religious, whatever it happens to be. Um, when in reality, if you break it all down, there will never be that utopia where we are exactly like sort in someone else's situation. It can't happen. And wouldn't it be nice and desirable to be able to celebrate that ultimate complete difference that there will never be me experiencing your circumstance exactly. Um, or you know, being being so completely different that that is celebrated. Uh, as opposed to working so hard to try and be like somebody else or be like a group of people or community. Yeah. And and it it's liberating like you're suggesting because it helps free our own mind from its insular constricted sense of self by realizing it's relative. You know, as we really open our hearts and our ears to others we see how our reality is a constructed reality based on the conditions of our life and our own cultural conditioning. And it's so liberating, not that we really get the other person's, but we get that this is relative. It's not a truth. It's not what we've been taking it to be. Yeah, thanks so much. I don't know your name. Diane, thanks, Diane. Yeah. Last week, uh, when I was here, you said something along the lines of, how many of us go out to the world and do these acts of service as a vehicle for uh, ignoring the experience of suffering. And, um, and it really impacted me in the past week tremendously, and I realized that uh, I had not uh, had sufficient opportunities to just turn down my life at all. I make a habit of a life of busyness, and um, I would like to hear a little bit more of about that. Um, today when you, when you were talking about uh, uh, freely giving and freely receiving, I feel that I have not had an inter- a, a fulfilling energetic exchange with the universe because I'm doing these things as a, as a method of, of checking out on them. Um, and it impacted me. And I, I don't know if you have any- yeah. Well, I think it can be an act of violence to be involved in too many things. I mean, just saying that on purpose to be a little provocative, that when we commit to too many things, and Thomas Merton said something to this effect, he was a Christian mystic who I think died in the late 60s, but made quite an impact and was really interested in in Eastern religions too near the end of his uh, time. But anyway, uh, yeah, he talked about committing to too many things, too many good things, let alone the bad things, but really good things, things that, need energy, that deserve energy, but committing to too many is really, like you suggest, a way of avoiding the sort of clarifying process. Because we, we have to begin to see our, the mind's confusion, the mind's woundedness. It's wounded, it's beat up, seeking happiness in ways that happiness can't be found. And often, or like I, <clears throat> you suggested, I don't remember what I said last week, but probably something that we're unconsciously driven by the pain in our heart and our fear of opening to the pain in our heart, so we stay busy. 
And sometimes we stay busy by doing things that are destructive, like consuming or getting addicted or, or building our fence higher and higher to keep out those we're afraid of. But other times we stay busy by doing, we might actually do good work in the world, but the motivation is neurotic. It's like we don't want to acknowledge the uh, uneasiness in our hearts. We're afraid of it. And what the world really needs is for people to model not being afraid of the messiness and the uneasiness. Because then our response, like our action in the world, will come out of not being afraid of the mess. As long as our actions come out of being afraid, we can't be sure that we really know what's wrong because we're afraid of it. And if we're afraid of something, we're not really going to get close to it. We're not going to sit down in the middle of it. We're not going to really listen well to each other. So how are we going to respond to what actually needs addressing? So this practice, it's not about avoiding the real work that needs to be done in the world. It's understanding what really allows that work to be effective and to actually lead to positive results. We need people who understand their hearts. You know, and when you look at people who have been really powerful leaders, like the person who comes to mind a lot for me is Nelson Mandela, just because he had that enforced retreat for 20-some years, whatever it was, in prison. And uh, somehow he had the wherewithal not to become embittered and to really look at his own suffering and then to see it in his guards and see it in the society, all the people you know, in that South African society. He saw the roots of suffering everywhere, it seems. And so when he came out, you know, he was able to be trusted and he had a power, I think, I mean, this is my interpretation, that people intuitively felt came, uh, felt, you know, from his own work that he did, sort of being right in the middle and the humility that comes from being right in the middle of one's experience. Time for maybe one or two more comments. Yeah. Say your name again. Uh, I work with adults with intellectual disabilities and challenging behavior. Um, uh, the comment about uh, being, you know, being good or being real, you know, like trying to get away from being good and, and move towards being real, um, was something that I, I felt was was really powerful because we. Uh, my, my, I've been working in it, the field for a while, and there's a number of people who work with me, and we. I've seen various stages of being like, oh, I'm good, and then I'm, I'm good at being good. <laughs> and that being met with something that's really, really messy, like uh, someone, uh, someone who's very vulnerable getting uh, hurt by someone who um, has a history of abuse and is, is, is doing it without any seeming, without any sensible reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, something that really is really unfortunate and really uh, horrible that happens, and how how everyone tries to cope with that, um, and still come back and try and figure out how to how to work with that person who was uh, the aggressor in that situation. And so there's there's a lot of opportunities to do that, but there's also there's also been um, a lot of things that have been kind of under the surface that have come up for people as they've done it a history of their own abuse or things like that. And once we've been able to kind of work through them a little bit, there's this, this opening that happens again where people are able to come back to it. Um, but I, 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 I guess what I'm saying is that uh, uh, it's still a trap that even as you get better at recognizing those things that we tend to fall into, and sometimes that can multiply so much that everyone seems to want some sort of lawful thing to happen. Like, well, because I'm being good, you have to be good to me. Somebody has to be good to me. And that can resonate through a whole bunch of people. And uh, and it, it's kind of hard to navigate sometimes. And I, uh, I think 
slowing down and trying to be real is, is very powerful advice. Yeah, and just getting a deeper and deeper sense of that any dependence, like to enter that work with the idea of being good is a setup, but to enter that work with the idea that I'm going to learn a few things about this mind and maybe in, in moments do something that's good, be helpful and not, uh, you know, the opposite. And Shelley and I earlier today were talking about working in the schools and just what a setup. And I had an earlier career in the early 90s as a behavior specialist in inner city schools. And uh, there's something about uh, being in the place, you know, in an institutional environment with kids who are acting out all kinds of trauma, basically, trauma of poverty, racism, other, you know, abuse, difficult life circumstances. And then there you are, sort of a a representative of the institution, you know, and you learn so much about how your mind is conditioned by having to restrain or control, like, be the heavy hand of the law in different ways. It's just these environments, like if we think life is about uh, finding this place where we're, we just put our good heart to work and we get gold back, you know, people's appreciation back. No, it's really more of a peeling away what needs to be peel, peel, peeled away so we can see. Because remember, we have a reptilian brain. All of us do, right? And then we have other strands of conditioning. And on top of all of that genetic conditioning, we then have our cultural conditioning, which, of course, comes out of all of this animal conditioning. And so this is what we are. And so we have to ground in this because the real beauty of humans is this um, ability we have to acknowledge honestly what's going on here. That's what makes for real beauty, spiritual beauty, is to honestly acknowledge what's going on here without feeling limited by it. Like not that leading to resignation, seeing that leading to resignation or giving up. Well, it's a dog-eat-dog world. I'm going to bite, you know, or I'm going to hide in a corner. Take care, everybody. Have a good holiday. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.